good is Australia? This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Hello and welcome back to Decode, the Batuta Advocates political podcast where we dive in to the world of politics, as you've probably figured out by now. My name is Wendell Hussey. It's another edition of News from the Trough. I've got my friends and colleagues, Leslie Burley and Dior Dave with me. How are we today, Leslie? It's wet and cold and I'm not about it, but Mm. I'm here. Yeah. Similar similar feelings over here. It's that kind of amnesia starting to uncover itself that, oh, I forget how miserable and cold that this great country of ours gets in winter. Cold and dark. And I feel like it kind of does spill over sometimes into how I feel about politics. I mean, I can be negative about politics at the best of times, but the times like this, you you know, you you look at it through the lens of the 5 a.m. sunsets, Mm. 7 a.m. sunrises, it's dark, it's cold, it's frustrating. So we'll just see how we go, I guess, with this episode. We've got a little bit to talk about. We're going to touch on the cricket to start off with because, you know, that's what all good politicians do. They try and touch on sport to make themselves culturally relevant. We're going to shout out a couple of girl bosses. We're talking about the National Anti-Corruption Commission, which came into effect this week. I really think they missed a trick by calling it the NAC. I think it should have been the NCAC. They should have done what they did in mm. some places like um, New South Wales. It should have been the National Cor- the National Commission Against Corruption, the National Corruption, en- whatever. They could have done something better. NCAC sounds better than NAC. I don't think NAC sounds great. Um, and we're also going to touch on what's happening with the NDIS 10 years on. There's a review has been handed down. There's a bit of chat around that. And also touch on where we're up to at The Voice. So there is a little bit to get through today. So we'll dive right into it. And we'll start off. With our clangor and banger of the week, I'm actually going two quotes. I've gone the um, the serve and the return serve from our Prime Minister and the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Rishi Sunak, who's weighed in to the sooking that the Poms have been doing after being absolutely dusted in the second Ashes test. 2-0 up, we are even though the Poms feel like they're actually 2-0 up because philosophically they've been playing the best style of cricket, mm, they have if the you're not aware. Victories. Yeah, they're morally yeah, yeah. 2-0 up, but mm. yeah, on the scoreboard, Australia 2-0 Ooh, up. Ooh, baseball. So Rishi Sunak has come out, he's weighed into it, and a spokesperson for his office has said, the PM agrees with Ben Stokes. He simply wouldn't want to win a game in the manner that Australia did. The spokesperson was then asked if the Australians had contravened the spirit of cricket, and the spokesperson said, yes. Anthony Albanese then hit back with, I'm proud of our men's and women's cricket teams who have won both their two opening Ashes matches against England. Same old Aussies, always winning. Australia is right behind A. Healy and Pat Cummins 30 and their teams and look forward to welcoming them home victorious. Definitely not written by Albanese, but I do appreciate the same old Aussies always winning and good on him for returning serve. Thoughts on Rishi's comments? I think it's quite uh, hypocritical of Rishi to talk about, you know, you wouldn't want to win a game in the manner Australia did, considering 
he kind of got the top job in England. He won the top job, not through an election, just mm. through everyone else before him failing. So I don't really think he's one to lecture other people on winning things in the way that they should be won. I don't think he's got to where he's got to fairly either yeah. as the potentially richest world leader getting around. Yeah, I'm not sure um, Rishi's able to be a moral arbiter on, on fairness yeah. and equality. Rishi is really the Stephen Bradbury of uh, UK politics. So if anything, he is actually an honorary Australian. Look, as someone who is 50-50 Australian and British, unfortunately, I can speak to this from a non-biased point of view and I just want to say that England needs to calm down. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. they're being massive sooks and they need to get on with it and play the game. And I actually think Albanese's quote is a banger compared to Sunak's absolute clanger. Mm. Absolute sookie. Mm. Yeah, I I did always wonder about you, Les, how one half of your teeth were yellow and fucked <laughs> and one half of you was always not showered. I was always wondering, how does she just shower the right side of her body but just somehow never manages to shower the left-hand side yeah, of her body? Look, it's a rich cultural tapestry, my background, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For those who can't see right now, Les, you're holding a a cup of tea in one hand and a big schooner of VB in the other. So it must be hard it's to balance. But yeah. yeah. Well, the Poms, they're refusing to have beers with us. Um, yeah. at the Did end we of the want series. to have beers with them anyway? Well, no. yeah. Do we want to drink tepid fucking I don't want their room temperature beer. beer. Yeah. No. And just to don't them give whinge. me a British lager. Yeah. Absolutely not. I am loving it. I, I hope they continue whinging for months. Mm. It's just so, so good. There's so many different layers to it. And we could spend an hour talking about it. But – we're here to stick to politics. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to girl boss Monique Ryan. She was a contender for that opening segment there, but got bumped off by Rishi. Shout out to her. She's racked up $28,000 worth of business class flights from Melbourne to Canberra since being elected. She's the member for Kuyong down there in Melbourne. Former medical professional, well-renumerated medical professional, and she's been living it up on the business class flights, which has drawn some criticism. A lot of people saying she is living for the job she wants, aka Prime Minister, and not living for the job she has, which is just a backbencher and a member for Parliament. But yeah, look, you know, she's making the most of it, and I think her argument is, well, I can take business class flights and expense them if I want. So I'm just going to do that, which I think shows you the level of disdain in the political Mm -hmm. class where it's just like, well, I'm not spending this money, so I don't give a fuck. Well, I mean, the total amount, 28K, is less than half of my hex debt, so really it's not that much money. But also (laughs) she ran a campaign on corruption. So Mm -hmm. girl, girl boss derogatory, she needs to really wake up to what her voters voted for because they're going to see that as an absolute hypocrisy. So, yeah, good luck, Monique, getting through that one. Yeah, I mean, for the voters of Kuyong, you know, this was such a huge vote for them to vote out Josh Frydenberg, you know, the Liberal candidate's been such a Liberal stronghold that seat and they voted for change, they voted for someone new, they voted for someone to actually represent the constituents rather than their party or their own interests. So, I think they'd be really happy with what Monique Ryan is doing at the moment. I think, yeah, <laughs> it's exactly what they voted for Fair and exactly the change that, you know, they were looking for. Yeah, Remember so when Bronwyn Bishop had to basically resign because of that helicopter flight she took? <laughs> yeah. That flight cost $5,000, by the way. Is that all it back, cost? Yep. Back then we were like, how dare she? Yeah, right. <laughs> 
yeah, and now we're like, uh, uh, 28K, what a, uh, yeah. inflation, I don't whatever, know. Whatever, Bron, go get it. And think about <laughs> the comfort difference between, you know, sitting in a loud, noisy, uncomfortable helicopter ride compared to the shocking one-hour flight time in business class going from Melbourne to Canberra, I mean. It makes Bronwyn Bishop look like a saint. Yeah, a real <laughs> woman of the people. Domestic business class is potentially the most absurd thing on this planet. Mm. Anyone uh, flying, like people, people flying business class from Sydney to Canberra, which I think is like a 35-minute flight, like you're yeah. up in the air for fuck all. I also don't even understand why a lot of these politicians fly from Canberra to Sydney. By the time you go to the airport, check in, get up in the air, get to Sydney, land, get from the airport where you need to go, get on a Murray's bus. Mm-hmm. Mm. The heartbeat of the capital <laughs> the Bush capital, the Murray's bus that goes from Sydney to Canberra, it goes from Canberra to all sorts of other places as well. But I think it's about a three and a bit hour trip. Just do the Murray's bus. Mm. I think it's like 30, 40 bucks. Beautiful um, scenic route as well. 100%. Driving you got lovely drivers George, on there. Yeah. Yeah. They give you the tour, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, business class around Australia is absurd. Yeah. It just shows you, I think, the sense of entitlement that Monique has, which, as you said, Dave, fits perfectly into Kuyong. Now, Leslie Burley, you're going to run us through – a momentous week in federal political corruption. Yep, big week for corruption. We're officially in week one of the newly launched NACC or NAC or National Anti-Corruption Commission. In their own words, the NACC is an independent Australian government agency that detects, investigates and reports on serious or systemic corrupt conduct. And there's a bit of that going around. Yeah, basically... They're trying to find the bad guys doing bad things. So just like for a little bit of a history lesson, Queensland, the moonlight state, home of the hillbilly dictator Joe Bjorka-Peterson, has had the equivalent of a crime corruption commission for literally decades. So it's a shock that it took it this long to get one federally. People are always saying backwater Brisbane, hillbilly Queensland, but like we've had one for a long time. Mm. Yeah. And in places like Sydney, a few premiers have been rolled by the ICAC down there, the Independent Commission Against Corruption. So mm. it's absolutely yeah. but that also is- to be fair, to the best of my knowledge, there has never been corruption at a federal level before now. That's why they've brought that it is in. True. So yeah. That so, is true. Absolutely so, true. Oh, yeah. There was really no need for it in the past, you know, twenty, fifty, hundred years. Yeah, it's a brand new issue um, that's just come to light now. So you might remember that corruption was a huge topic in the last federal election and the NACC was a Labor government election promise, which to their credit, they have clearly delivered in just over a year from being elected. Now, as of yesterday, which was Monday, there were already over 40 submissions to it since it launched on July one. A lot of people said that that was shocking. I was like, I don't know, I expected more than 40. <laughs> but there are a long list of more to come and, and we'll see it kind of blow out in the next few weeks. The head of the NACC, Commissioner Paul Berriton, marked the day as historic, declaring that people are no longer prepared to tolerate practices which might once have been the subject of, if not acceptance, at least acquiescence which is a fancy way of saying we're sick of this shit. Mm, Preach. Yeah, so he's really reflecting the public sentiment there. He also warned politicians to not abuse the NACC as an opportunity for political point scoring, a.k.a. you can't just dob anyone in because you want to trash them in the media. He even said that he will name and shame anyone he suspects doing this, which 
I thought it was a good thing to say in mm, week one mm. because this absolutely could become a political yeah. point scoring game and he's straight up gone, we're not doing that. And if you do, I will tell everyone. Yeah, I, I do like that. I mean, inherently it's going to be political, right? They're politicians. So like everyone who gets referred is going to be like, oh, my God, they're trying to smear me politically. And so far everything that's been raised, I think everyone's been like, mm, okay, valid. Like, yeah, let's look into that. Let's have a look at it. Oh, the only one that kind of confuses me and I'm not 100% sure of, Les, like we're talking to things you might mention that, that are going to get referred, like Sports Rorts, Stuart Roberts um, Association with a company that was basically getting consulting work off the government, which he denies. All that sort of stuff comes up. There's one about the payment that was made by the Commonwealth to Brittany Higgins, her yeah. payout. That's one that I kind of don't understand why that should be going to the Corruption Commission. That's one of the ones yeah. that does seem a little bit politically motivated. Can you explain that to me or do you have an understanding of what's going on there? Look, I also have some question marks there. So the ones that you listed about, um, Stuart Robert and Sports Sports Synergy 360, also PwC, have been yep. raised or will be raised by the Greens, whereas the Coalition, Linda Reynolds, former MP for the Coalition, said that she may put, yeah, the confidential payment between the federal government and uh, former staffer Brittany Higgins forward, as if, you know, Linda Reynolds hasn't brought enough tension to this yeah issue already yeah look i also have question marks i can't give you much of an explanation either because i without knowing what yeah. she's accusing yeah it's hard to know why it should go through i just don't understand why it's corruption mm. yeah i think her argument is that there needs to be transparency when we award figures like this i would be really interested to hear what an actual lawyer would have to say about why mm. certain settlements need to be private but to be honest it's a huge gray area for me as yeah. well and i think if she puts it forward we will hear more about it or she won't put it forward because she's already kind of copying a bit of criticism about yeah. it so that's a bit of a wait and see that situation but the coalition will certainly have a hit list labor party definitely have a hit list for all of the morrison era greatest hits they were the most recent government not just his but obviously the two prime ministers before him the liberal party have been in government for 10-ish years mm. And so they will probably be the primary focus of a lot of these cases, just naturally speaking. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. And then there'll be stuff popping up with the Labor Party over the next couple of years. That's right. And the, so, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the coalition claim that Labor are using it to attack them, but actually it's just like, this is where it lands timeline-wise. If you guys had brought it in yourselves, you could have attacked Gillard and Rudd for mm. things that they did. Yeah. So. Yeah, it definitely will be a political thing, but at least old mate has said, yeah. Paul Barrington, I should say, has said, let's try and not do that. Yeah. But so it's quite there, timely. You sorry, go, Les, is there a, um, is there like a, a sort of statute of limitations on what can be referred to the NACC? Is there a specific time period that you can go back and say, well, we need to investigate this or has that kind of not been confirmed yet? I'm actually not sure. I would need to check that. Mm. I, I don't know if there is. Obviously, if you're declaring something from a long time ago, it's going to be really hard to prove. And I mean, the point of these commissions on a state level have generally been to deal with things that are happening right now or have happened in the kind of immediate history. Mm, yeah. You know, if you're going through an historic case, uh, like, like let's use Queensland as an example. Like if, you know, 
something else was dug up about Bjorka Peterson now, it would more likely be a Four Corners story than a... Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, unless it's something that's continuing or has created a pattern of corruption up until today. So I think they're more focused on things that are immediately happening mm. around them. Yep. And yep. assuming, you know, politicians that are still serving in government or in the opposition crossbench. Yeah, yeah, or have served recently enough that they still wield some kind of power. So one example would be what happened last week in New South Wales, which is the New South Wales equivalent, which is ICAC, and their investigation into former Premier Gladys Berejiklian and former MP, also former BF, New South Wales MP Daryl Maguire that was handed down last week. Yeah. Now, both of them were found guilty of serious corrupt conduct, and this is an example of the kind of thing we'll see in the federal NACC. So, I mean, we've all heard this story, but the short version is that Maguire was doing some dodgy things business-wise. Berejiklian knew about it. Mm. They had to kind of prove whether they were in a serious relationship or not. The papers that we've seen published last week indicate that they were in a serious relationship and that she did know things, and so they were both found guilty of corruption. That's the kind of thing that we could see play out in this federal equivalent. Mm. There has been some public debate around whether public hearings should occur in these kinds of cases. Some politicians argue that there definitely should be because transparency is key. Others argue that there shouldn't be public hearings because let's say someone is found not guilty. Let's say Gladys Berejiklian, for example, let's pretend that she she wasn't found guilty of corruption. She actually did nothing wrong. Well, actually, if you look at her and Daryl's statements, I find that, you know, they think that she was doing nothing wrong. Yeah, and the Facebook posts of 40 to 55-year-old white women in New <laughs> South Wales. But let's pretend that she wasn't found guilty and she legitimately did nothing wrong, no doubt about it. She would have had her personal life trashed through the public spectacle yeah. for no mm. reason. So there's some debate around whether that should or shouldn't happen. People feel very different about it. However regardless of how you feel about Labor, Libs, Greens, Gladys, Linda or Stewart, we can all agree that corruption in federal politics sucks mm -hmm. and now all we can do is wait to see how effective this NACC actually is. Yeah, that's a thing. They have pumped some money into it. I think yes. we're up to $262 million for the first four years, which is a significant amount of money. Obviously, we'll see how much the lawyers bleed out of that budget to uh, line their own pockets, but there's a significant amount of money there. It's not one guy named Greg who's going to be in charge of running it from a back office with an old Windows computer. So let's hope they do do something. Quick shout out to Paul Brereton, who he was the author of the Brereton Report into our behaviour in Afghanistan. And yes, obviously a lot yes. came out of that and there were significant repercussions for that and significant learnings out of that. So you know. He's got a good track record. Yeah, Paul doesn't fuck around. Yeah. Paul doesn't fuck around and he's not afraid of stepping on people's toes. I want to see if there's going to be any stepping on toes in regards to post-Canberra appointments for politicians. I'm talking about the likes of Scott Morrison, who was um, involved very heavily, obviously, in the AUKUS submarine deals, walking out and getting lucrative consultancy gigs with people in the defence industry. Same thing with Christopher Pine, his lobbying yeah. firm, using his knowledge and his understandings, obviously, of the way the defence industry works, but then using potentially his connections to gain huge amounts of money for 
private contractors in the defence industry, how that overlaps, how much there was discussions about those things while they were still in politics and what effect the billions and hundreds of billions of dollars that they were spending in government meant or had upon them getting these roles and getting these lobbying contracts afterwards. I want to see some sort of stuff about that because it feels a lot like politicians do things when they're in Canberra or in Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne in terms of in office and then they just finish up their role as a politician and all of a sudden they're getting paid hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars working on something that they were also working on when they were in their previous job as a politician. So let's hope hope, uh, Paul sets his sights on people like that. It's a wait and see. Moving along, the National Disability Insurance Scheme has reached its 10th birthday. Uh, A review's come out recently about the NDIS and obviously it's worth saying that it's changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of Australians over the course of the last decade. Many people received support for the first time or started receiving an actual suitable amount of support for the first time. Huge, huge changes it's made, I think. Pretty much everyone can agree it was a wonderful thing that was brought in. It was a momentous thing and it's had a huge effect upon the lives of hundreds of thousands of Australians. I think there's roughly 600,000 participants in the NDIS at the moment. So obviously a huge number of people. But there has been chat over the last little while that the budget for the NDIS has been growing significantly and has been blowing out and there are growing calls for reform. Those calls, understandably, are scaring a lot of people because they're worried that budget reform simply means budget cuts and that's going to mean people aren't getting services, people are being cut off, people aren't receiving the appropriate amount of service and we step back to an era more than 10 years ago where people weren't receiving the service that they need. The government has promised that anyone on a current plan won't be cut and that they're just looking at things like price gouging and fraud and bureaucracy and all that sort of stuff as well. So- Just wanted to have a quick chat about that. I thought that it's probably worth detailing if you're not familiar with it. The NDIS is a scheme that entitles people with a permanent and significant disability under the age of 65 to full funding for any reasonable and necessary support needs related to their disability, obviously subject to certain restrictions. Funding is allocated to the individual and the individual or their guardian chooses which providers supply the funded goods and services, again, subject to restrictions. So, you know, basically someone with a particular disability is allocated a plan, allocated a budget within that plan, and then they're allowed to access the services that they need fully funded by the government to provide them with a quality of life. Now, there are a crazy, crazy amount of layers and it would take hours and hours and you know, people are spending huge amounts of time researching the various different layers within this and the various different issues. But at a top line level, cut downs are needing to be made, the government is saying, because the spending has grown to $35 billion annually and it's projected to reach $97 billion by 2032-33. So obviously significant rising in the costs. I just want to say, I always find it really interesting with the dialogues around these things. Like whenever you hear about the NDIS talked about, it's like budget blowouts and we need to cut back and we need to be efficient and we need to you know, be really careful about what we're spending money on. And then when things like negative gearing or capital gains tax concessions for investment properties come up, it's like, oh, well, you know, that's just, you know, let's let's go easy. We, you know, we shouldn't just rip into that. We shouldn't just slash and cut and burn that. You know, we, let's not be as careful with that sort of stuff, which annually I think are going to cost about $157 
billion dollars over the next little while. Very, very expensive, obviously, but that's not something that we need to look at in terms of trimming the fat. It's more so just yeah. I just find it interesting, the discussions that you hear around the NDIS and the way it's framed. And obviously there does need to be fat trimmed and we need to look at efficiencies and we need to look at the way it's run to make sure that everyone is getting services that they need and it's done sustainably so it can be around forever. Um, but yeah, I just find it interesting the discourse yeah. that it gets thrown up in. It's a blowout in your own party if you want to cut it. It's a mm. blowout in the opposition if you want them mm. to cut it. So it's a word that's used very strategically. Yeah. yeah, it is. And so the things that politicians are talking about cutting down are the various layers of bureaucracy and the unaudited price gouging, which are blowing the budget out. So some of the things that have kind of stuck out to me over the last little while in terms of the reporting and the things that are being discussed is the amount of people that are not actually providing a service to someone. They're taking an income from the NDIS, but they're not actually providing a service for that. So in terms of layers of bureaucracy, you go, there are 3,415 staff members at the National Disability Insurance Agency, which is the agency that basically administers the whole scheme, keeps an eye on on everything and is on top of everything. And Bill Shorten has come out and said, the mismanagement of the scheme basically been going on for the entirety of its existence and the agency is rife with fraud, inefficiency and spiralling costs that won't help the participants in this scheme if left unaddressed. And I think that also does filter down into not-for-profit organisations and for-profit organisations as well where what they're saying is you have people in things like marketing, middle and upper management and team leadership positions that aren't actually providing a service. You hear kind of stories about there being more people in those marketing positions and those middle management positions within organisations than people actually providing a service to people on the scheme. So I'm always very suspicious when I hear that there's more people not providing yeah. a service than mm-hmm. there are providing a service. That doesn't sound to me like an efficient and streamlined system. All those people in middle management will tell you, oh, no, we're streamlining the service. We're making things cleaner and more efficient. But they're also, you know, taking salaries well over a hundred grand. And if the service is efficient, you don't need more people making it efficient. That to me seems inefficient. But anyway, and I think also when budget cuts come around and things like streamlining costs and everything like that, they're not the first people to put their hands up to say, oh yeah, I'll actually step aside. You probably don't need me for this. That's maybe one of the reasons we're having to overcharge and price gouge to make sure that our budgets align. So Shorten has come out and said that's something he wants to look at. He's also said there's much more good than bad in the um, NDIA, but it's just all about basically going through every single level and cleaning it up and finding out what is happening at various levels in terms of what people are doing and what people are charging money for. Yeah, I think it is a, it's a tough conversation to have around things like the NDIS where you have to be able to criticise it for, again, for its inefficiency, for it not providing the service that it needs to at the costs that it should be, mm. but then without just attacking the actual scheme and the system. So yeah. it's it's a hard line to walk, I think. Yeah. And I think that's that's where it's 
yeah, it's it's got to be it's got to be looking at the people who are administering the system and the people who are providing various levels of service and making sure that they're not taking the piss because that affects the people who are on the scheme and that's going to mean that people who need to be on the scheme aren't because there are budget cuts and there are tightening of the criterias for people to go on that scheme. So and that's where it does kind of lead into what they're talking about price gouging in terms of providers. Yeah. So. If you're not familiar with it, what happens is people are given a plan, say 50 hours of service for the year. They can then allocate how they want to use that 50 hours worth of service or a certain budget that they want to use. So, you know, it might be occupational therapy, physiotherapy, speech therapy, all that sort of stuff. There are um, consultants and various different people who can consult them on what they need or provide advice as to what they think is the best way to spend this plan. There is a cap on prices for how they can do that. So, for example, an occupational therapist in a metro area can charge 193 bucks an hour, which, yeah, it's obviously it's a specialised field, but 193 bucks an hour is a significant rate. You then wonder if an occupational therapist can charge 193 bucks an hour under the scheme, what are they going to charge under the scheme? Yeah, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence um, from people who are participants in the scheme that is being collated at the moment around how when they have declared that they are on NDIS, they get a very different price to other people who aren't on NDIS or if they haven't declared. And so that's where the idea of price gouging is coming into play, where it's not actually the NDIA (laughs) that's causing this like inflation of cost at least from the service provider, it's a service provider yep. taking advantage of the NDIS and therefore charging the NDIA way too much money for something because they know that it's free government money. And yep. so that is a huge part of the budget blowout. Yep. And that is an area that absolutely needs to be addressed because it's not only a budget block, but it's also leveraging the lives of people with disability to make a quick buck. Yeah. Like there's so many layers around it, which are uncomfortable. Yeah, it is. It is for sure. And you see that sort of stuff in terms of across all industries, right? You see it in construction. As soon as people know they're getting government contracts, the prices go up straight away. And that's, as you mentioned, what's happening here. And you're seeing potentially like the anecdotally, you're seeing private providers who might charge $120 $120 an hour physiotherapy for a sports injury, but then as soon as they're seeing that they're getting an NDIS client, uh, whacking it up to the $223 an hour. Um, and yeah. are they providing that much more specialised and specific service? Who knows? And that's where, yeah. yeah, you need more auditing and it needs to be looked at more at more a granular level to make sure people aren't price gouging. Because also anecdotally, you're hearing things about being charged a certain amount more hours for stuff that isn't potentially required. So there was a story that came out recently as an example where NDIS uh, participant with cerebral palsy needed a new cushion for her electric wheelchair. She's been on the NDIS for some time. Everyone's aware that she has an electric wheelchair. Everyone's aware that she has cerebral palsy. But as a result of needing to get that cushion changed, the OT charged six hours for a report into replacing the cushion on her wheelchair and $193 an hour for six hours, we're looking at just over 1100 bucks to get a new cushion. And so that's where on top of the actual 
price that's being charged per hour, providers are also seeing that there is a certain amount of, amount of hours there that may not be mm. being used. So then they start basically going, righto, well, let's get you in this amount of times. Let's look at doing this and this and this so that the full amount of hours can be billed. Because same thing, if you can charge $193 an hour, what do you charge? $193 an hour. If there's a certain amount, if there's you know 13 hours worth of OT allocated within that plan and you're a private provider who needs to make profit, what are you going to do? You're going to charge the 13 hours. So I think... That's where there needs to be more people on the ground starting to look at these things and make sure that basically people aren't pulling the piss. And as you said, Les, it's, you know, pulling the piss in an area where you're taking advantage of vulnerable people. These aren't, you know, government building contracts where the money's just being pissed away anyway. Yeah, it's it's something that needs, there just needs to be more boots on the ground looking at this, making sure that these providers aren't taking the piss and then all these layers of bureaucracy are actually doing what they need to be doing rather than sitting around and making presentations over the course of a week that go forward that basically validate their role within an organisation. Yeah, Um, I think this comes back to what you were saying before there, Wendell, about how this is kind of spoken about in such different terms to when budgets need to be cut on things mm -hmm. like, yeah, negative gearing, uh, tax breaks for, you know, high percentage of earners in Australia. Oh, $300 billion worth of submarines. Exactly. That's it. And I mean, it goes back to that point because this, it seems like is being looked at as another way to make profit or mm. cutting the budget of that is another way to, you know, get back some of that ground on the debt where it really shouldn't be looked at in terms of profit. This is, you know, a scheme that's designed to help vulnerable people. And the fact that it's being seen as this thing where, you know, people are taking that advantage to maximize their profits is just seems to be running it the wrong way. Yeah, for sure. And it's actually, I wanted to shout out, I saw something that basically in 2021 modeling by per capita think tank showed that every dollar spent on the NDIS injects $2.25 back into the economy as well. Mm. So that's something that I don't think kind of gets discussed and it doesn't get looked at through that lens. And the examples that get used are someone who hasn't been in the workforce being skilled up and being provided with services that allow them to go out and get into the workforce and mm-hmm. then basically pump heaps of money back into the economy. That's that's something that basically provides a huge return on the investment there, which again, doesn't get looked at. Yeah. And the government needs to tread really, really carefully here because if they do attack price gouging in a way that is super aggressive and violent, then services could be reduced for people with disability. Like if there's, yeah. if, if it's done in an industry disruption way, then private providers may feel less inclined to provide services to people with disabilities. So there's concern around that. Mm. They also need to address this in a co-design way where they are working with people with disability. They are working with First Nations communities and remote communities who don't have access to services as to how they can strengthen and create a system that works better for people in the system. And they just need to be so careful around the language around this so that it doesn't become a future debate down the line where this program gets cut or axed. And and you can sense the hesitation in people like Bill Shorten who is saying the positives outweigh the negatives. And so I think there is that hesitation and that acknowledgement there, but this isn't something that's kind of like a quick one and done solution. They need to actually go down the path of long-term reform. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
otherwise people with disability will be left behind. So, yeah, yeah, it's a really, really important conversation that we need to be having. Yeah, 100%. And it can't just be like, oh, well, we need to slash the budget for this. So we're just taking $15 billion out this year and we're just going to leave the NDIA to just figure it out. And as you said, then the people who need the service will be left behind. Anyway, that's that's something that I'm sure we'll keep hearing about and we'll see what happens. Bill Shorten, the NDIS minister, says he's on top of it. He says that he's got six major things that he's looking at within the NDIA and um yeah he's he's gonna he's gonna clean it up so he says so mm. we'll see anyway dave you got a little bit of an update for us on the voice and nadoc week yep well i'll tell you what big week for any organization that's an acronym starting with the letter n we had the <laughs> nacc mm. we had the ndis now it is nadoc week this week so NADOC Week, uh, for those who don't know, NADOC stands for National Aboriginals and Islanders Day Observance Committee. NADOC Week was born out of Indigenous activism in the 1920s and 1930s and has been observed since July 1955 on a yearly basis. Now, the reason the acronym is the Day Observance Committee was because it was originally commemorated on usually the weekend or the Sunday before Australia Day. But in the 1970s, I believe, it was moved to July. And now it's been observed as a week. It was originally used as a way to promote public awareness about the unjust treatment of Aboriginal people in Australia. But more recently, it's sort of shifted its perspective to becoming a celebration of Indigenous history, culture and community, as well as a chance to recognise prominent achievers in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. The theme for this year's NADOC Week is For Our Elders, which celebrates and recognises the immense role that elders play in First Nations culture and community. Some of the people that were recognised at this year's NADOC Awards in Brisbane was Australia's first Indigenous surgeon, Professor Kelvin Kong. Uh, He won Person of the Year. That's the biggest award there. The Sports Person of the Year was awarded to Donnell Wallum, uh, who was an Australian netballer who used her platform as one of the people in the national team to promote uh, Indigenous causes. And the Lifetime Achievement Award was presented to Auntie Dr. Naomi Mayers, who has been a leader in the health field throughout her adult life, as well as being the lead vocalist and one of the founding members of the Sapphires. So not a bad resume there. She's done a lot of good for our nation. Multifaceted. Exactly, exactly. Um, So this year, unsurprisingly, a lot of the talk surrounding NADOC week has been related to the voice to parliament. But before I do get into the voice, I think it's important to note that while these topics are pretty closely linked, there's no one singular First Nations view on the voice with many people on all sides of the political spectrum having differing views on the upcoming referendum. Um, NADOC week has been going for what is that, almost a century now and will mm. continue to go long after this referendum debate has finished. So, But this year, that's certainly one of the focuses. The latest polling suggests that support for The Voice is falling. The No campaign have been ramping up their efforts over the past couple of months. While the Yes movement, a little bit behind on that, they've only recently launched their official campaign as the more specifics about the actual voice to parliament have come out. Um, They will continue to increase the drive over the next few weeks and all the way up until the referendum in October. Uh, The most prominent voices in the No campaign, as we've spoken before, people like One Nation's Pauline Hanson, Coalition Senator Jacinta Price, they've been increasingly vocal in the media about their views, but the Yes campaign, as well as obviously taking that side of it in the media and in you know, social media and TV ads, they've indicated their intention to run a more grassroots campaign, including 
door knocking and community consultation. Mm. There's going to be a heap of events too, I believe. Absolutely, Concerts yes. and that sort of stuff. Yep, that's right. I think they've already kicked off some of those events. There's been rallies and campaigns. The Yes 23 organization have been very prominent during this NADOC week. And as we've mentioned before as well, the only official materials that will come from the government will be a pamphlet outlining the cases for and against The Voice that will contain two 2,000-word essays, one for each side. And this is going to be an interesting process and it will be interesting to see what they come up with because these essays will be written by the politicians who voted for and against this legislation for their respective sides. The exact process surrounding this collaboration isn't specified in the legislation, but the final approval will be decided by a majority of politicians on each side. So it's likely that the essays will be dominated by the major parties and their views, Liberal and Labor, on either side. Question. How many people are going to read a 2,000-word essay? Two 2,000-word essays. So true. 4,000 words, yeah. yeah. How many not people are going to do that? many. Not many. And a quick side note as well is that <laughs> when these essays are submitted to the Electoral Commission, they do not get proofread. They do not, like, if they literally yep. go two words over, those two words are cut off. And so, <laughs> like... <laughs> They not only is this a wild thing to do to send out a two thousand word essay. It's do they have to submit like it to write. turn it in as well? <laughs> it comes up. Well, that's the thing. They don't. So there's actually no requirement for fact checking. So they could literally say whatever they want. That's right. Yeah, and as long as that's all right. Uh, look, to be fair, Pauline Hanson. Peter Dutton already they, does that. They'll, they'll fact check. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're they'll, pretty they'll like be decisive, pretty honest, straight up, unbiased. Yeah, yeah they'll exactly. fact check each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. Yeah, sure. yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's what it is. As long as the majority of politicians working on this essay approve of it, it'll go through. There have been calls by David Pocock, among others, uh, to run it by an external body that has to be impartial and fact check it, but. It doesn't seem like either side is too keen on having to do that um, because those calls have not been heeded by anyone Mm. in the government or opposition. As you mentioned, the aforementioned Pauline Hanson has already threatened to release and threatened being the key word there to release her own 2000 word essay if her contributions are not included in the official no pamphlet. Which means we now need to read 6000 words apparently. I feel like that's just going to be a Facebook post from Pauline. Yeah. One of those really long ones. Oh, she might do another video, a little cartoon. Yeah, something animated. Yeah. Classic. I think maybe it's like the pessimist and the the sadist in me. That feels like I kind of want to read Pauline Hanson's 2,000-word essay more than I want to read the official yes or no. It it would definitely be more entertaining. Yeah, more engaging. There'll there'll be a lot of passionate language in there. Like, as we said, it doesn't have to be fact-checked, especially not Pauline's own. So it could be 99% wrong. But, yeah, it'll be entertaining. And this is a nasty thing to say, but one of the benefits of it being written is that we don't have to hear her voice. Mm, uh, that which is, is true. A little treat mm. for us. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if she'll be using spell check on that before she publishes it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, put it into Turnitin and see what it says. Exactly, exactly. Another intriguing part of the no pamphlet will be the contribution by Victorian Senator, former Greens Party member Lydia Thorpe, who stands on the opposite side of the political spectrum to Hanson and the Coalition. Thorpe is one of the more prominent voices in the so-called progressive no campaign. It's unclear whether her views will be represented in the official no pamphlet and if so, in what form. I think it could be super interesting to have you know, a collaborative essay process between Pauline Hanson and Lydia Thorpe. Mm. She said, Lydia said she was really interested to work with those guys and get together and figure out a strategy, which, yeah, 
fair enough. It'd be it'd be an interesting makeup in that room. Yeah, it does seem like you know you're in your uni tutorial and you get paired with the person sitting across from the room who really has no interest in knowing you or working yeah. with you. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it feels very uni. I think it will go either way. I would not be shocked if it was just like coalition, coalition, coalition. And I would not be shocked if they're just so desperate to get every no vote they can that they split it in three. It's mm. like Pauline and Co, Coalition, Lydia yeah. and Co, and it's this like weird segmented two thousand word essay. Good God! Yeah. Um, look, it's going to be a thrill when they arrive. Uh, the Yes campaign one will probably be a lot more, you know, the same points of view. There's kind of a united mm. front. Mm. Whether they've been campaigning well on that united front or not is a whole other question, but at least they have like the same point of view for the most part. Mm. Well, I did see uh, among the yes campaign events, there was a big yes word spelt out with lots of people standing together in the formation of YES. So. I, it could just be that. Yeah, I think they're yeah, are they targeting the pilot community. The mm. maybe they're looking out for <laughs> Monique Ryan in business class when she's flying over. So, yeah, interesting strategies there. They don't need to use the whole 2,000 words. I'd say that too. True. They don't, really don't. You know, I'd rather they don't, yeah. actually. Don't feel like you need to just fill it up. Mm. Is there like if you take off some of those 1,000 words, can you include pictures? Is a picture worth 1,000 words? What? How many pictures <laughs> are you allowed in? Very good. Very oh, good. God. But to wrap this all up, the pollies will have until the 17th of July to submit their homework, either through Turnitin or just straight to the teacher. Um, The pamphlets will be expected to arrive around two weeks before the referendum, which will likely be sometime in mid-October, perhaps around the 14th or somewhere around then. So I don't know if anyone's counting the days till unfortunately we don't have any more debate over The Voice, which has just been, I'm sure, so enjoyable for so many people to have, you know, their rights and their position within their own country debated on a national scale like Mm. this. Yeah. 17th of July doesn't – that seems That's like a pretty short turnaround. If if I was given that long to write my essay, I'd be fairly off it. Yeah, but I wonder if the I do it last minute anyway. Well, exactly. Gonna That's say, what I was going to say. Yeah. You're staying up on yeah day yeah. off, mate. You're but right. I want a month or two at least to know that I'm staying up on that day. Yeah, so yeah. Mm. You want to actually actively avoid it for a month yeah. and then – And then finally get down to it when you really have to. When was the last time either of you read a 2,000-word essay? Like, it's not short. No, 2,000, I mean, yeah. I find writing 2,000-word essays, because, I mean, I was at uni, you know, early last year, so I had to go through a few then. But I wonder how much of this will be approached by politicians just as homework. So as I did for a few essays, you know, 500-word introduction, 500-word conclusion saying almost the exact same thing. There's a 1,000 words knocked mm-hmm. off already. You get a bit of filler in the middle, copy and paste some really long quotes so that eats up your word count. And, you know, bibliography is good for a few words yeah. as well. So they it could really be They should just do what every other words. student. They should just do what every other student is doing and use chat GTP. I was yeah. about to say, Leslie, mm-hmm. let's hope no one chat GPTs this in. <laughs> Well, no one's checking, so... Yeah. So true. <laughs> they can do whatever they want. All right, well, covered a bit of ground there. Yeah, been a Lots big week. to discuss. Thank you, as always. Great to be us. here again. Look Thank you. Look forward to doing it again. Yeah. Talk soon. Talk soon. See ya.